All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I will not, I will not, uh, this talk will, be, will not be about um, communitarianism. It will not be about uh, how good is, would communitarianism be for libertarians. I will not uh, propose a libertarian theory of community. Uh, so why did you give that, uh, that, uh, um, I will just uh, uh, try to take the voluntary approach very seriously. I will try to make it, uh, to make the point that voluntary communities are by and large much better than the one we live in, which is the state. And I would like to, this, to be the beginning of a new laissez-faire studies new laissez-faire idea of community, what I would call laissez-faire communitarianism. There's already this word, it's been used uh, in other contexts. Now about libertarianism, I cannot remember who said that, but uh, someone said that libertarianism is like a mystery novel. The only thing it's a bit boring because you always know that the killer is the state. And all right, it's a bit funny, but the more I study modern history, the more I realize that really the killer is the state. And, uh, and for the rest of social philosophy, and according to much of social, contemporary social thought, the killer is actually freedom, the free market, capitalism, and in our word, individual freedom. And this brings us to a great a quotation from um, Schumpeter that uh, you know he was Austrian, he was an economist, but he was not an Austrian economist of the Austrian school. He says, capitalism stands its trial before judges who have the sentence of death in their pockets. They are going to pass it, whether the defense, uh, whatever the defense they may hear. The only success victorious defense can possibly produce is a change in the indictment. And there was actually a big change in the indictment. Uh, it started from inequality, class differences. Uh, later on, it destroyed the environment. Uh, right now, what's, what's the indictment? It is that uh, it's not producing wealth anymore. It stopped the creation of wealth. So the indictment actually changes. Now, I will show you, this was a uh, thing I wanted to show you with it's the economic growth from zero to 2005. This is something I really like because it tells you a lot about the economic miracle, the European and American miracle. People, let's say, for until from zero to 50, it's very difficult to keep, you know, constant dollars. You can I forget all the methodological objections you can have. But still, what you realize is that it started in the 1500s, went on a little bit, because it was, for the first time in a small part of the world, it was felt, this is worldwide, for the whole world, not for the West, the whole world. And it went on, and it was like, went up to $800 by the beginning of the 17, 18, actually, uh, 1800s. And then, then, in the past 150 years, it went up to an average of $8,000. A lot of people say, well, that's only for rich countries. Not at all. If you take Third world countries, the curve is steeper, and it's more recent, of course, but it's like in the, in the past 20 years, 
people were out of um, poverty, taken out of poverty by the billions, a bi more than a billion people got out of poverty. So it is one thing, it's the, another thing that Schumpeter used to say is that capitalism has been killed by its own achievements. And uh, to try though to curtail the power of government simply by showing this uh, immense amount of wealth that was created by capitalism doesn't work. If you were coming from Mars, you would think that humans were only talking and discussing about this thing. How do we get the secret for growing, growing again, make being more, being even wealthier, and you know, bring it to other countries that are not well. But that's not what we're doing, and we'll never be doing anything like that. And this idea that the market somehow is not enough was very well understood by Rothbard himself, who just a few months before he died, published this article, which is very well known by all of you. It's called Nations by Consent. Anybody not familiar? All right. You are not. Great, at least one. All right. So this is, uh, and it was actually an intellectual bomb thrown at the libertarian movement and thrown at, uh, at Rothbard himself, you know, who created this very nice dichotomy, so the power and market, and they all make a lot of sense. The only thing he said, and it, right at the beginning, he says, uh, contemporary libertarians often assume mistakenly that individuals are bound to each other only by the nexus of market exchange. Mistakenly. Yeah, so, and that, that was, that was a thing that did not go too well with a lot of libertarians. But then on the other hand, he was sort of concealing the truth a few pages later when he said that libertarians and classical liberals are particularly well equipped to rethink the entire muddled area of the nation state and foreign affairs. Quite the opposite, let's be frank. Classical liberalism beginning with John Locke and, const and going on to Constant and even to Ludwig von Mises never understood at all the real logic of the modern state. The ultimate dream was always to enlighten the elite, the ruling elite, so that the beast could be tamed. Right, so you have, um, well, well, not only not the, the single leader, but the group of leaders that could tame the beast. I don't know why they would do that. It was, in fact, the weakest political project that... Uh, uh, that you can think of, of modernity. And we are still living under the supreme fiasco of classical liberalism. This is uh, something, and where, where does it come from? Well, it comes from a very simple thing. They tried to curtail government using the Constitution, and now we realize very easily that the Constitution is not enough. It's not working. It's, um, so libertarians, 40 years at all, ago at least, they started to think that uh, the logic and the morality of the free market was, and I think it is, superior to that of the state. And thus, the free market could at the end uh, free us all from coercion. Well, gotta tell you, it's not working. Why is it not working? It's not working because, because the state, it's not a matter of rational discussion at all. I mean, you, it's a matter of religion. It's much more a religion than, uh, than anything that political philosophers should discuss. 
Think about it. The state has created more readers and orphans than any other institution in the history of mankind. If you take all private murders, you probably equal five minutes on the Eastern Front in the Second World War, or um, 10 minutes in the Gulag, uh, 20 minutes in Auschwitz. I don't know. You know that all the private, I would say, private murders, or murdered by, by the church, by the mafia, by any private uh, institution. And also, the state destroyed more wealth than all disasters, calamities that ever occurred in the history of mankind. And yet, it is supposed to be the ultimate creator or source of wealth creation. So, you know, there's something irrational about the state and this idea of the libertarians that you could start talking rationally about the state it didn't work, at least it didn't work in the past 40 years, and it did not create that kind of utopia that Hayek and other political philosophers were talking about, the utopia that moves people, not for lowering 1% of taxation, which didn't happen anywhere, by the way, but uh, just um, to go to the barricades for, the, for, something, for something, just um, for an anti-state policy that could become also utopian the great liberal utopia that uh, Hayek was talking about. And the, the thing is that the state is really the highest and only political reconstruction of politics. It is an historical contingency dressed up in universal clothes. It works everywhere, but it was created as the response to medieval world, uh, to medieval Europe, to the disruption of medieval Europe. So it's religion, it's a super cult of both the stupidest part of our population and the cleverest one. Well, the stupidest are the ones who vote the cleverest. So it's really the super moral majority. And uh, uh, what, what is happening right now, a lot of people are not even realizing that we are at the end of the curve of money. Let's say in 1945, clearly we were pretty much at the end of the curve of blood for a long time, for um, states it was much easier to get the blood from their citizens than money. A taxation higher than 10-15% would have called for a revolt. Uh, riots everywhere in every town. But, you know, you conscript millions of people and millions of people dying in the trenches, not exactly a revolt. So you could extract blood much more easily than money. It's not true anymore. We know it is the opposite nowadays. They sent us to combat by the millions. We'd make a revolution. And the average taxation is over 50% in all Western countries, the real one. And there's no revolution at all. So it's, um, what is happening is something that's very similar to the collapse of communism 25 years ago. And, uh, the Western bloc, the, the, what was called the free world, is really collapsing under the burden of the heaviest, most intrusive, and most expensive public sector ever created in the history of mankind. It's very simple, and uh, I'm very well aware that some of you, like my friend Paul Gottfried, are more, more, much more worried about the culture war, what's going on, is, and I'm, I'm middle of the road, I'm quite worried about it, but not as worried as you are, because I still think that if people were rich enough, they could 
they could still do something about it. Once they're all zombies looking for food stamps, then the culture war will be won, totally won and administered to them like that, like, uh, like the food stamps. Uh, Communists, in a certain sense, 25 years ago, understood it very, very much better what was going on. It was clear to them that the system was doomed to, for failure. Everybody knew that. The only question was, what took so long? What took it so long? Why took it so long? Why, why, was, why could, could it resist 70 years? And I think historians are still working on that. And in due time, that will be the exact same question of our societies, the welfare state at least in the past 25 years. Without the enemy, how is it that it could go on for another 25, 30 years? Let's see how long it will take to collapse. Well, actually, the story is even longer. It starts in the 1500s with the state that just wanted to forge two actors. Well, the individual and the state, the, two, the only two political actors in the state on the stage and it destroyed all communities and all ties in order to do that. And of course I could tell you a lot and we could discuss a lot about the unencumbered self which was the fixation of all communitarian philosophers 30 years ago in the big debate between the two kinds of socialists, the communitarians and the liberals, liberals of course in the American sense. So, but, but it was true, they had to, the state had to create a kind of individual that was bound by only one fictitious community called nation. Big one, almost non-existent, very mystical, and uh, nothing else. So there's this, this idea of the unencumbered self versus the situated self, social self, communitarian self is not totally to be dismissed as it was by libertarians. And, um, and because the unencumbered self is really the strategic goal of the state, and it's been like that. And actually, re recently I was uh, rereading Nozick, and I found that the only semi-libertarian part of Nozick is certainly not part one. The other one about Will Chamberlain is not too bad. But the third part, which is a small part about utopia, is something that I suggest you might want to reread being now, what, the 40th anniversary of the publishing of Anarchy State and, and Utopia, which was an important book. A lot of discussion, and of course, you know, Robert knows it never answered his cri critics. But the thing is, the problems in the third part is that, that, that uh, knows it poses is that even a just society, one in which property rights are thoroughly respected, needs some sort of bonds between people. So the idea of the ethical good life is an important discussion. Many libertarians have just discarded it because it is another path leading to a coercive society. But the, the idea of community does not have to redesign the entire social structure. We should take very seriously the proposition that voluntary communism is much better than involuntary liberal democracy, with maybe a 60, 65, in certain places even 70% tax rate. And uh, some communitarian philosophers I know tend to think of the community as sort of a roadmap to enlarge to the society. But don't worry about it, it's only philosopher stuff. There is nothing really going on and it need not to be. So without, without 
a state to back such a claim or such an idea. There's just no problem whatsoever. It is impossible to extend it to the whole society if the, the state is not behind it. So the idea of uh, Nozick was very simple. And uh, he just thought uh, that, uh, that he, you could have um, several communities in the marketplace of communities uh, in which anyone could choose from uh, the best. And I'm sure we wouldn't mind having communities of people who uh, would, uh, for gay marriage, or communities where would, they would adopt dogs, or dogs would adopt gays. I mean, we wouldn't care too much. So, Different social orders uh, with open borders, fluctuating membership, and uh, free secession at no cost. You could change community as you change the underwear. You could go around shopping for a community, like uh, a lot of people I meet some these days shop for a religion in the United States. You know that um, they're going to get married. I'm Protestant. She's Catholic. We're going to become Orthodox. Of course, most of the times you were just born in a community, you're born in a religion, and you stick to that. But um, the, the idea that there could be a marketplace for possible utopias was not, was not bad. One point is clear. Libertarian framework is open to communities, ways of life that are at odds with our values, with our viewpoints, and with, with our outlook. And... Um, and as long as socialism or any other perversion, perversion is played in, uh, in, in a voluntary fashion, there is not a problem. We tolerate any act of communism between consenting adults. So the idea is that social order, if social order could only be the, the object of, free, of a free choice, then we could allow all sorts of social order. So it's a utopia of utopias. Now, Chandran Kukaris was, was a guy who, who certainly worked on this and, and noticed that the idea of Nozick is not libertarian because at the end there is always the state filtering what is admissible, what is admissible and the kind of communities that are not, that are not really accept, acceptable. So if you put a state framework at the end of it, it says this is good, the other not, is not good, then it's, the thing is not working. And I tend to agree with uh, Chandran on that. And, uh, but, uh, but what really, what is really important to note is that the communities were never a threat to other people. They were never a threat in American history. This is, uh, this is a very fine book that came out in 1875, The Communistic Societies of the United States from Personal Observations. And these, these kind of people are, a lot, a lot of us wouldn't like them to, but they never caused harm to anybody. They were organizing their life in, uh, in uh, communist. You know, the, no threat comes from communities, pretty much like from bad TV programs. You know, just don't watch them. I hate people that complain about bad TV programs. It means they have watched them. You know, so it's, um, it's really very simple. And um, so who was, who was the leader of this uh, libertarian, what I would start calling a libertarian or laissez-faire idea of community? Spencer Heath. He started in the 1930s, then in the 40s, 50s. Went on for about 20 years. About the possibility of communities of owners 
And uh, he already envisioned private gated communities before they actually ex existed. And he worked about the idea of property rights and property rights and communal property rights that could be used against the state. And I got to tell you this, I wouldn't be very interested in communities were they not possibly a tool to demonopolize the state or, or the unstatization of society. Think about um, Reston, Virginia. I'm sure uh, you're fam some, some of you are familiar with that community. That was formed in 1964, and by the, the year 2010 was uh, suppo supposedly the seventh best community to live in the United States, and it was certainly based on property rights. Right now there are about 300 communities in the United States uh, with uh, 60 million people living in them. Uh, some of them are, strictly speaking, communities of owners. What they have in common, all these communities, is uh, that they are changing at least the perception of the social dimension of property. Property is not a private thing. You know, the, the old classical liberal idea of property was the one of Benjamin Constant. You take property out of a, it's not a natural right anymore, but it's given to vote. So if only the owners vote, then it means that the assembly will never dispossess the owners. It's very simple. It's not happening anymore. You know, it's, uh, uh, there's something, uh, I don't know if you've heard about it, but there's universal suffrage. So it's ridiculous to follow that old idea of property in the world we live in. But some scholars are working on this uh, idea of the use of uh, new concepts um, uh, property and the social dimension of property in an anti-statist way, of course. Uh, another one is uh, Spencer Heath McCollum, who's uh, the grandson of um, Spencer, of uh, Heath. And another one is Fred Faldbury, and in Italy there is my friend uh, Stefano Moroni, who's an, ar an architect. He got, uh, he just, fell in love with social science and now he's working a lot on these communities, gated communities. The project is really sim simple and it's to rethink property rights in order to value the anti-status role of communities. Now, the American states in the beginning were supposed to be something like that. You know, when federalism really mattered from um, 1781 to 1789, uh, and later on, I'm not only talking about the Articles of Confederation, later on for quite a while, it's the United States thought, in the United States there was this idea that the state, the states were laboratories for social experimentation and you could do pretty much whatever you wanted and you could uh, build communities, very different communities. And the amazing thing is that when federalism was the key issue in the United States and it was taken very seriously, the government actually shrunk. It's, uh, you, I'm writing a book on it, but you'll find it very, pretty amazing, the story that the, the government that Abraham Lincoln inherited was in size smaller than the one George Washington inaugurated. It's the only instance in modern times. So maybe something something was, uh, was done right. Although we know that uh, that does not impress anybody out of this room, you know, it's not a good example. So the government was shrinking, so who cares? There were slaves, right? So it's, uh, 
why is it that we need a lot less politics and we need this idea of communities to curtail politics or to curtail power, the power of the state? Well, because the economic miracle, what is called the European miracle or the Euro-American miracle, put it the way you like it, needs to come, it came out in a very, in a state, almost stateless environment. Politics must retreat if wealth is to be created. You know, it started in, in, uh, in that area of Central Europe that goes uh, from Florence to Antwerp, the whole area, the economic miracle, and then it moved to Holland, then to England, then to the United States in the 1800s at the end, and it, they were, all these societies were certainly not much regulated, and uh, so it's obvious that politics must retreat. And there's only one model, private property, market economy, the role of the entrepreneur, and economic rationality. So there is really, at this point, I think there is one only hope to reverse the tendency that's been going on for about 500 years the tendency of centralization, where you have to break out Leviathan using property, new ideas of property, new communities, but especially the secession and independence movement that is actually happening right now. Something that Rothbard talked about 20 years ago on Nations by Consent. And so actually it's this from a libertarian viewpoint is really bizarre. We have to respond. If we want less government, we have to respond with more governments. We have to create one government after the other, just smaller, smaller, and maybe overlapping government. So libertarians should really be in favor of any secession movement from Scotland to Catalonia to Veneto and, God forbid, to Lombardy. And so building more governments we will return to being like the free man of the Middle Ages that were master, were, well, they were slaves, of course, but slaves of several masters. So if you're a slave only to one master, the one single government, then you're really a slave. But if you have competing masters, then you could let them fight for who's your, your owner, right? And you enjoy a lot of freedom. Now I started, I'm, I think I'm almost, uh, over, but there's clearly what is going on right now in the West is a class struggle. We can see it, and we we used and Hans used uh, many years ago the idea of class analysis for what is going on within our societies. And it's there's a war and a class struggle going on between government beneficiaries and the group of net losers from intervention in the once free market. And, uh, and in the West, we are really totally witnessing the end of uh, theoretical Marxism. I mean, the practical Marxism collapsed 25 years ago. And now I think it's the theory that's been challenged. And 20, 25 years ago, it was mainly the practice. One really wonders what uh, what old uh, Karl Marx uh, could say. As you know, in, um, according to Marxist jargon and ideology and uh, philosophy, actually, the government is the committee of the bourgeoisie. So it's the committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. 
And what, what if, as it is now in all Western countries, government is actually destroying the means of production in most advanced capitalistic society? So government is destroying the bourgeoisie. Okay. It's, uh, that would really be a theoretically impossible to solve challenge for Marxism. Well, clearly, either we find a cure for the disease called government, or government will deliver its own final solution for the economy and civil society as a whole. And the cure could start lesser fair communities and go on chain secessions. Thank you. Thank you.